Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jesse Cannon. And if you're not familiar with Jesse, Jesse has a lot of experience doing a lot of different things within the music industry. He's done everything from being a recording, mixing, mastering engineer. He works on podcast development. He's worked for record labels. He also has an incredible YouTube channel called Newsformation, which focuses on helping bands understand the business side of being in a band and promoting their music. And in addition to that, he's also an author who's written a couple amazing books. So in this interview, we definitely get into all of those different aspects of his life and what he does in the industry. And we talk a lot about creativity in the music industry and using your creativity to help with songwriting, but also to help with the marketing side of your music. You know, it's not enough to just simply have a song. These days, there are so many different mediums that people go to to consume music. And so we We need to know how to get our music out there so people can actually find it, consume it, share it, and enjoy it. So in this interview, we get into all of that stuff, and Jesse has a ton of knowledge when it comes to the marketing side of things and understanding the algorithms behind things like Spotify or TikTok and all that kind of stuff. So we definitely get into how to get your music featured on Spotify playlists, what sort of video content you should be creating if you are using a platform like TikTok or Instagram Reels or YouTube and that kind of stuff. There is just so much great stuff in this episode. And if you're working on new music, you have to have a game plan for how to release it. Otherwise, no one's going to hear it. So I think if you take a lot of the information Jesse shares here today, you're going to see a lot more success with your music. And that's what this is all about, right? Spreading the word about your music. So with that said, let's just jump right into this episode because I know you're going to love it. Jesse Cannon, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? I am really excited to do this and so happy to be here today. Thank you. For people who might not know you and aren't familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into all the awesome stuff you're working on? Yes. So uh, a lot of people know me as a producer, mixing, and mastering engineer. I've worked on well over 2,000 records over the last 20 years. Uh And then some people know me as a YouTube nerd who has a weird voice who talks about promoting your music on YouTube. Uh, And then other people know me for my very weird other career outside of that where I produce and then inadvertently talk a lot on some political podcasts from the Daily Beast, Rolling Stone, things like that. And I talk politics and make people angry all day. (laughs) <laughs> Gotta love that. I'm sure I'm sure the uh, comment sections are always fun for that kind of stuff. Uh, I, n- n- nothing like hearing uh, how stupid your voice sounds all day and that you're a fucking moron because you didn't know that a certain... Uh, here's my favorite one. Um, that if you don't say Nevada instead of Nevada, if you say, say Nevada, you're going to really hear it from Nevadans. <laughs> Nevadans. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Nevada? So is, is it Nevada? I don't even know. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I get this wrong half the time, but I've given up. I, if you offended you, well, find something else to be outraged about. There's plenty worse things. The same thing with like niche versus niche, right? People always will jump on that kind of stuff too. You, us New Yorkers, uh, we have a Houston Street that's spelled the same as Houston. And uh, boy, do we like to shade people for that one. <laughs> right on, man. Well, 
obviously, I mean, that's a lot of stuff that you're working on. And uh, I, I got to know you through the audio side of things to begin with. Um, I'm curious to know, like, how did you get into the music production side of things to begin with? Like, were, were you just a musician yourself? Is that a typical story or? I, I was a musician myself, but I kind of like, you know, like I always find it a little pretentious when Brian Eno is like, I'm not a musician, I'm, you know, a producer. And you're like, Dog, you played in Roxy Music as a keyboardist. Like, you literally invented a whole <laughs> genre of music. Like, you're a fucking musician. I played in bands. But literally from the moment I played in bands, I also was producing records. At 15 years old, I was trading Snapple and Cool Ranch Doritos and, let's be honest, alcohol and drugs um, for <laughs> people to have me record their record. And... The crazy thing is not a lot of people could do that. I would come to your place with like literally just Tupperware buckets of microphones and cables and a four track recorder. And I'd make your seven inch record. We go get it mastered somewhere nice. And, uh, and then eventually enough bands caught on to that. I did this and that I was like the reason that what would really happen a lot in my day was um, I produced a lot of punk records, but it was the, the end of the hair metal era. So most people who did record production were really into hair metal. So they were putting like the fucking 80 snare on everything and just like making terrible production choices. And I would go in there and be like, all right, let's set the game like this. No, you're going to take the reverb off, get that stupid delay off the singer's voice. Let's tighten <laughs> that delay to less than a slapback. So it's just more tasteful and in line with the punk of the day. And like, I basically would translate that until I knew how to turn all the knobs and do all the things on the big consoles in the rooms I was working in. Well, the engineer who'd usually be, let's be honest, like 28 with long hair and a rat t-shirt on would be looking at me like, I fucking hate this 17 year old little <laughs> bastard, but he sure brings me a lot of business. Uh, and yeah, I'm, that just kept happening until like I, there was like one year of my life I had to get another uh, I had to get a real job uh, for a little while, but in all reality, uh, it lasted about four months, and I've never really uh, uh, had what I call a real job, even though some people would argue working for the biggest media companies or a major label is a real job, but hey, whatever. <laughs> I still woke up whenever I wanted most days. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I guess Yeah, I guess most people would think that uh, working for a label or something like that would be a job, but I guess if, as long as you're enjoying it, then it doesn't necessarily feel like work. Although I guess that, you know, th there is that saying, like if you, if you uh, do what you love, you never work a day in yeah, your life. But and that's how I, every day, like in all honesty, uh, one of the podcasts I work on is coming to an end because uh, one of the hosts got a new job and I'm like heartbroken. And I'm like, I'm losing like one of my favorite jobs because one of my best friends is moving on to bigger things in their career. Cause that the person I made things with, it's like, it's a weird thing to be, sad about but that's that that's it's a nice thing that i have going for sure and so as far as the production side of things goes like was it was all self-taught i'm guessing like oh no I, I what i will say is this is that i got very lucky is that um one one of the best things and best traits i think especially since we're talking to people starting out is to acknowledge that you may have great taste which i knew i had but i did was not competent and I wanted to make great records. So a great example is um, in my day, since, you know, like when I started out, we were on uh, at best two inch tape, often one inch analog tape um, and terrible machines. The, you know, the biggest myth is, oh, yeah, well, you're on tape. Well, that's going to sound great. It's like, no, there was such bad machines. <laughs> you and can then there easily was make tape sound like shit. 
Well, just like, you know, like a Fostex D16 sounds like fucking dog shit, unless it's super modified. Um, anywho, uh, I knew to go to a good engineer until I became a good engineer. And whenever I was working on something good, I would be at a studio with someone competent and just knew my taste is good. I'd let my taste do the work, but their competence as an engineer do it. And the same thing is getting a good, you know, if I produce a record for too long, somebody else should probably try mixing it. We may go with my mix if it's a better vibe because I know the material so intimately. And we should definitely add another mastering engineer on it if I've been working on it too long. Um, but this, the thing I always knew was that, is that like, get someone more competent than you or was objectivity than you and at least see what they else they would do. And I'd really push the bids for that, even if it meant I took a pay cut when I was first building my name. Um, and then um, what then happened over the years is then when the home studio thing happened, so I got a Pro Tools uh, system in 1999 when they were, I think I spent $50,000 to have a Pro Tools system <sighs> then, which was entry level. Um like I had a TDM that had eight inputs, but that meant I could do uh, guitar and uh, vocals and bass at home in my home studio, which was like a big thing for the budgets. So but then what I would do is I would go do drums in the studio because I couldn't do drums in my home studio. Um, it was not big enough. It, my neighbors would have murdered me. Granted, they wanted to murder me from the half stacks. Like that uh, mess <laughs> that you had behind you definitely uh, made my neighbor plot to murder me a few times. Um, so, anywho, uh, my thing was always this it's like my studio wasn't competent enough to do drums. I had eight inputs. I needed room mics for the type of records I was doing. And that wouldn't have, I need to, you know, I didn't want to sub mix. I wanted to mix when I mixed. And, uh, so I went out and I tracked the drums elsewhere, at every chance I could. And then eventually, uh, I started bringing my Pro Tools rig to other rooms. So we would rent crazy rooms that weren't studios for certain people. And that's how we would do it too. And, uh, yeah. And then I, you know, yet again with the competent thing and talking about teachers, uh, I worked under Alan Douches, who's the most credited engineer in the history of music. Um, and Alan is one of the best mastering engineers, uh, of all time. And Alan taught me a ton and he introduced me to Steve Evitz, who's one of my favorite producers of all time. I did tons of records under Steve. Steve introduced me to Ross Robinson, who was one of the best producers of all time, in my opinion. And, uh, all of them taught me a lot. And then what was nice is then I had this really, really nice studio in New York and great producers come in. And you know what you do all day when you have great producers coming to your studio is you learn a ton from them. And now what's funny is when I go to produce now, I like to have an engineer so I can concentrate on the songs. And Brian DeMeglio, who runs my studio, Brooklyn Par Recording Paradise, Brian is a great engineer and I learn from him now. I love that because, yeah, so many people feel like they need to just take it all on themselves. But, I mean... Yeah, there, when you have people who are ahead of you to learn from, like there's so much your 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 skill development just grows so much faster when you have someone to shadow like that. Yes, yeah, and it, it, you know it's even a great thing when you uh, get to be my age. Is like I have just such a great, and I shouldn't even say that. Most of my life, I've always had a great text messaging thread. Just now, group text messaging is so much easier. But like everybody's always sharing things, artists, like I learn so much from just having good friends who are texting each other or just following good people on the internet. 
uh, about things. But um, yeah, between that and then, you know, having someone like Brian who had, who sees so many different people working and is always working there. When I go back to work, I, at the studio, I always am picking up things from him. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's just, I, I, I just think that that's such a, a good way to learn. And I know a lot of people think like, well, there's no opportunities at big studios these days. And, and so yes. like, you know, th- that is true. They're definitely shrinking, but it doesn't mean that you can't find people that can still help you. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of resources for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I mean, what I even think too, the friends you make in message boards and truly, I am not kidding you. So I'm 45 years old. Some of my best friends still to this day are people I met in message boards when I was 15. Kurt Ballou from Converge and I became friends in a thing called uh, Rec Audio Pro, which is a thing before message boards really were a thing. They were called news groups, and we were discuss recording, and we were the two people who were like into punk and that, along with Brian McTurnan as well. And we all knew each other from that, and you know, then I'd book his band down in New Jersey. It's hilarious. But, I love that. You know, thir- nearly thirty years later, it's so true. It's like the world is so connected that it's so easy to just meet cool people and just network that way. I remember even back in the day, like when ICQ was a big thing. You know, I, at least it was in Canada. But uh, oh yeah, it was your chair. I used it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I used to like come home from school every day and just like be like, okay, how, can I look up my favorite artists? Like, are they on ICQ? You know what I mean? Like, just as like an ignorant like twelve year old being like, yeah, maybe like so and so is on here. And sometimes they they were, you know, and you connect mm-hmm. and you're just like, hey, like love your band, whatever. And you just start up a conversation and you end up learning so much cool shit along the way and you network and like from that, so many opportunities came my way of like shows and this and that. So it's just like you just have to take chances sometimes and you know, realize that there's a lot of cool people out there who just want to chat with cool people and, or, you know, have conversations and just be friendly, you know? So, um, yeah, I love that 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 was the approach that you took with it. Yeah. And I, like, I say it all the time, I'm still making friends. Like sometimes my DMS, some people I just have like a commonality with and like even my discord for my YouTube channel, it's like, they give me a lot of great recommendations. Totally. Well, I mean, obviously your, your career took off and you got to work with a lot of great people and that would obviously connect you with a lot of great bands. Um, but also like one of the things that I know about you that you kind of mentioned earlier is that you're, you're creating a lot of content as well. And I feel like one thing that I, I really look up to you with is that you are very serious about bands treating their band as a business and like, and, and people taking their career seriously. Um, and I think that that's like, that, that's one of the things that really bums me out about being an engineer sometimes is that you find these bands that like have all these this great music and then they have no idea how to market themselves. And you're just like, oh shit, like this great record that we spent so much time on is going to go nowhere. Um, and and I love the fact that you have been very vocal about, you know, helping bands with their businesses and understanding their creative process and that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd love to dive into some of that stuff. Um, and I guess a, a perfect place to start would probably be your book, Processing Creativity. Um, can you tell, tell us a little bit about what that book's all about? Yeah. So when I made Processing Creativity, which is my last book, uh, which came out seven years ago now, which I kind of can't believe, uh, or six years ago, I'm sorry. Um, I had kept seeing the way records went wrong and over and over and over again, I'm like, uh, this was so preventable. If you just didn't do a certain thing or you had done a certain thing, if you had acknowledged something, if you had not had a really dumb thought in your head about how things work, whatever it may be. 
So I started writing down every reason I've seen a record fail. And then I was like, okay, but here's the thing. So I should also say this. I was getting really bored with record production. And I was like, okay, but I love making records, but I'm getting really bored and I got to go to a new level. I'm like, you know what I realized? I'm friends with some of the smartest record producers in the world. None of them read scientific studies. None of them read actual creative studies. You know, the funny thing is there's only one college program in America that is a creativity major. And so I'm like, what if I just read all this stuff? And I'm a fucking nerd. And so I started doing it. I read 200 books. And so what I did is I started to take the creativity science. And sure enough, a lot of it started backing up what I assumed was wrong with things. Some things taught me different that I'm like, oh, you know, there's a reason this artist actually did it. Um, but what I did is I then compiled a book uh, over the course of four years uh, that is basically like, here's what you actually do to make great music. Here's the best practices I've seen from working with big artists. Here's what I see messes up every artist that tries to do it with literally out exception. <laughs> and then here's um, what science tells us as well. And even down to never mind science, just like some experts. So there's a whole chapter on how you get along with people better. Um, because I think obviously bands are famous for fighting with each other. Um, and I, most of the science I got from it and the techniques I got it from was I read about 20 marriage counseling books because bands are marriages and, it's helped me a lot. That's why I have uh, such a wonderful relationship with my girlfriend as well as I uh, know all those things. But uh, it really also has helped like the amount of people who've written me and said, you know, that chapter alone made my band like each other so much better. Uh, it's kind of crazy. It's the, one of the most popular emails I get. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's it, it's so true, though. It's like, yeah, you, you spend so much time in a band with all these other people around you. And like, yeah, if you don't know how to communicate properly and all that stuff. Of course your band's going to crumble apart and you're going to hate each other and all that stuff. Right. And there's that. And then what's even weirder is a lot of people assume like really dumb rules about being in a band because no one shows your rule book. So the, the one I point to the most is the most toxic thing in every, that happens with every group that makes music. No one wants to hear is one sentence. Like I would always notice this is one of the guiding forces behind bad records with 14 streams, don't tell me how to play your instrument and I won't tell you how to play yours. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, sure, you may be a better drummer, but somebody, music is all an emotional reaction. And being like, dog, that fill is really taking away from everything and getting in the way of what's happening here and you may need to chill out. Hey, that beat's not as powerful when you, you know, hit the snare in that pattern as when you were doing it the other day. It's just emotional responses and, you know, being able to comment on that is how everybody gets better at their instruments and you make better songs. And truly, every great group I've ever worked with, that's not something they say to each other. It's true. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the big themes that I found in your book is that you talk a lot about how um, people should be making music that sounds authentic to them. And, yes. and, and that is like a big part of making music that's enjoyable. But at the same time, there is that balance of ego versus serving the song. And so I'm curious to get your take on that. And, you know, when you get the drummer who is like, 
wanting to throw in fills everywhere because they think it feels authentic, like authentically good and shows off their talent or whatever, you know, like there is that fine line of like, no, you're, you're ruining this song, right now, you know? So, uh, how, what, what's your approach to that? So I used to do two things a lot as a producer is like, I particularly, I'd be like, okay, who's your favorite drummer? And so they'd be like, you know, so much time. Oh, Dave Grohl, Travis Barker. Now, if they said Travis Barker, I'd be like, fuck my Because, <laughs> um, like, Travis is the not the best example to stop doing such big fills. Jesus no, he's Christ. getting worse and worse with that. Like, I love I love uh, him. I think he's a great drummer, but I just, like, I have such a hard time listening to the music because it's all drums now. One of the things we all have to, uh, uh, like, acknowledge, too, sometimes is, like, there is some people who, like, when you're an imitation of them, it's bad. Like, it's the same thing. True. The worst singers in the world are imitating Matt Healy these days. Like if you're if Matt Healy is like your main influence, it's usually going to be lead to such bad taste. It's always to like guys who look like they're 14 years old and they're like, "Ooh, my sex appeal." It's like sex appeal, dog. You don't even look like you got a pubic hair yet. Like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, I digress. Um, yeah. So I, I would say to them, you know, who's your favorite drummer? And then we'd listen to some of their stuff, and I'm like, well, why are you doing more than this person? That's my style. I'm like, well, let's think about what you're, you like about your favorite drummers. I'm like, it's not always that they were playing the craziest thing. It's not always that they were doing this thing. It's that they were playing a thing that also went with the emotion of the song. To the rest of us, this four-bar fill you're playing before the chorus is feeling like it's taking away from the vocal. Whereas your favorite drummer is accentuating the vocal and bringing up the energy into the chorus, and they're serving the song, which is technically all of our duty. What if we heard what it would sound like if you did that? And then when they hear everybody go, that's so much better, you usually won your argument. And yes, it would take <laughs> some time. It would take some being gentle to this, kid who deep down I wanted to smack the shit out of. Uh, but, you know, I have a kind, patient soul um, 99 out of 100 days, and so I would uh, get through that. But, um, yeah, uh, that that is how you deal with somebody who um, doesn't quite get it, is with some slow patience and appealing to what their own tastes are. Totally. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's such an important lesson. Like, every time you're in the studio, you're learning – new things. I think it, it, it forces you as a musician to learn a lot about yourself and the way you approach your instrument and the way you approach your music and your relationships and all that stuff. It's, it's a very therapeutic experience, I think, you know, but, but yeah, you definitely run into examples like that where it's, you know, someone's overplaying and you just have to gently nudge them in a different direction and see if they feel like that's better, you know, or make them realize like, okay, this is, this is the better way to go. Um, and yeah, I, I totally think that like, had you and I worked on a record back in the day, you would have wanted to smack the shit out of me too. Cause it took, it, it, took, it took a producer, like for me, like it took a producer to do the same thing. Right. And like, yeah. and to basically, so I learned it by watching great people do it to me. Yeah. And it's like, for me, like I had a producer who basically had a meeting with my band behind my back and was like, you need to fire Mike. Like he's overplaying. And then they had that meeting with me and I was like, okay, well I'll give it a shot. And then I realized, Oh Yeah. The simple is way better. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, a, it's not the ego. It's it's about serving the song. And once you've learned that lesson, it it drastically changes how you approach writing music from that point forward. Um, so yeah, I like I like that you brought that up. Um, another well, I'm, cur I'm another cur thing that I'm curious about too is like when it comes to creating music that's authentic to them. There are obviously people who are 
pursuing careers in this industry. And, you know, sometimes the music that feels most, most authentic to them isn't always the music that's going to pay the bills sometimes. Oh, yeah. um, and so there is oft, often that struggle. Um, so what are your feelings on people in that situation who realize like, you know, maybe a career in this isn't, or maybe the music they're making isn't profitable? So the, the first thing we have to acknowledge is you have to make the music you want to make. That literally the biggest myth in the world. Like I've been in some of the rooms with the biggest pop stars. You know what they never say? Yo, if we do a song like this, <laughs> it's going to blow up. This is what's trending right now because the trend will be over and or even if the trend isn't over, no one likes an authentic imitation. They like an authentic thing. We have this crazy barometer for authenticity these days. So – First, we have to acknowledge that some of us are not made for this world. You know, like I live in the hippest part of Brooklyn. And when I say I live in the hippest part of Brooklyn, like if you polled Brooklyn and said, what's the hippest subway? They'd be like, that stop. I'm like, I live next to that stop. I live <laughs> next to those bars. There are people I know who like 17th century polka music authentically. They're not putting it on. For some reason, this fucking nerd likes this music that is never going to be popular. And what you have to accept is everybody gets handed a, del uh, handed a certain hand in life, and either you figure out a way to bring that into the mainstream in some way. Now, YouTube and doing tutorials on the history of that may find you an audience that helps you make a living. But I'm sorry, 17th century polka or whatever – dumb trend <laughs> is not getting you the pop charts unless for some reason uh, they see your tutorial on YouTube and all of a sudden Miley Cyrus is like, I got to have a solo from that accordion right there. <laughs> like maybe you'll get to the pop yeah. charts that way, but it ain't going to be your authentic 17th century program. We all fix it. I mean, to be honest with you, the genre I listen to the most is hyper pop. Hyper pop should just be in the Webster's dictionary as Way music for people with horrible attention spans that is kind unlistenable to the general population. <laughs> I know it. First time I heard a hyper pop song, I was like, ah, that sounds like my brain. Everything's going way too fast and it's not optimized for pop at all. It's <laughs> way too much. Anywho, we have to accept this that some things aren't doing. Just, just the same way. Let's say your favorite band is Tool. And, you know, going back to the last thing we were discussing. Sometimes the band would be like, Danny Carey is my favorite drummer. So what I would have to say to them then is the opposite of simple. I'd be like, here's the thing about Danny Carey. And I've unfortunately had to spend time with that asshole. Horrible person. But what he does is the key to so much of like, let's call it prog music, is they come up with a basic idea first. But then they're like, okay, I'm going to do variations on this till I find the one that's interesting. So what I'd have to say to somebody a lot of time is like, okay, You've come up with an idea, but this is a generic one, and it's not quite a great idea yet. So what are we going to now do to develop it? Let's put you on the click track for a while, and you're going to play this a bunch of different ways until we were like, oh, that's the one, and that's a little bit more exceptional. And then we develop it from there and develop it there until it's something a little bit more interesting and acceptable than the thing that you were doing that was kind of a little too simple. Um, and, you know, that could be even – a instead of just going doom ba do ba doom ba and pop punk to make it doom ba do that a doom ba like just adding a little four tom hit in there that makes the groove a little cooler whatever it is but like 
what this all comes down to at the end of the day is like you have to depend on your taste and sometimes your tastes do not align with the world, but you need to do your best version of that. And that's the pursuit you do in life. And if it doesn't work out, you tried your best, but that's all there is to it. Totally. I, I definitely agree with that. And I like that example of like, you know, just trying variations to see what fits. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's a great exercise and definitely something, you know, especially with drummers, you can get away with like, you know, you, you play the same pattern for like a whole verse and it's like, okay, we could throw in an extra fill here. Let's try this. And like, yeah. You know, and, and I think that that's all, that often gets like a lot of the best results. And um, yeah, I can't remember who it was. I had a previous guest on the podcast who was talking about um, one of the things that they would often do with vocals is, they would just let the singer do their parts over and over again. And then eventually they'd be like, okay, let's just do a take where like, there are no rules anymore. Like try purposely try to change up your vocal pattern and you know, your melody or whatever. And let's just see what happens. And like often there would be like a lot of magic in that because people would start to, you know, feel the music a little bit more and, and get some cool shit out of that too. I mean, one of the, yeah. And like one of the stories I, I think I've told once or twice before is like, I can remember, um, I was working with Daryl from Glassjaw and Head Automatica, and you know one of the most talented vocalists I've ever seen. And um, so this is the first time we were working together, and he comes in, and I hear his vocal, and I go, "Wow, maybe Daryl's a studio creation. Like that sucked." <laughs> and he's like, "Yo, burn that for me. I'm gonna go listen to it for a while." So I make him a MP3. He pops it on his you know iPod Classic because that's what era we were in. And he listens for a while over in the corner and he comes in and he does three of the best vocal takes I've ever heard in my entire life. Because what he needed to do is he needed to listen to the bare bones idea and then how he could improve upon it. And he needed to play with it a little in his head. And then like, sure enough, that song we did, it's like that hook is fucking sick because like, that's what he needed to do. And other people, you know, like one of the things I see, one of my, friends who's a guitarist in a popular band, I won't give this away because he's not authorized me to, he hears a sick riff from one person and what he goes and does is he just plays variations on it until he improves it. And he goes, okay, and then that ends up on his next record when he likes something is when the variations he did to make it even more sick. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common technique. I've got some friends of mine who... They were very vocal about that. Like, yeah, all of our hit songs were written that way, you know, find like a catchy lick and invert it or, you know, splice it up or whatever. And you get, get something cool out of it. And, you know, sometimes you can look to those uh, those inspirations as, you know, a starting point for for coming up with something unique. Well, maybe not unique, but a different spin on it, at least. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the real goal is make it sound more powerful to you. Because, like, oftentimes it's going to be – it's just the thing. If, like, if you feel you improved on it, well, I mean, it was already great. Never mind. I mean, my one friend used to do this technique where um, he would take the number one song. He was in a, like, twinkly emo band. He would take the number one song out, and he would always just make a loop of it. Like, let's say it's the verse. He would loop that verse, and he would write on top of it, and then he'd take the chorus, make a loop of it, write on top of that, and then he'd play off that song and then rebuild the song, hit delete on the original pop song. But he'd take some of the structure, the key, chord changes, and write on top of it, and then he'd make a new song out of that. And that would always be how he'd start, and he wrote amazing pop songs. That's amazing. I love that approach. It's such an yeah. interesting way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, familiarity is a is an important thing with music, right? And mm-hmm. and to hear stuff that you're that you're familiar with, it it makes it that much catchier. And uh, 
that kind of segues to, to something that I was going to ask you about, which was uh, your YouTube channel, Museformation. And uh, one thing I, w- I was watching a video of yours recently, it w- you were talking about musical earworm, I think is what oh, you yeah. called it. And and it's kind of that idea, right? Where it's like you hear the same thing over and over again, and it eventually becomes so catchy. And uh, when you write songs that have that familiarity to them, it definitely just immediately makes you gravitate towards it a little bit more. So, yeah, I think that that's very cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain it for the listeners that um, what I'm saying now is that the TikTok era is over. We're now in what's called the earworm era. So a lot of people say, Jesse, TikTok's obviously the biggest thing you're a fucking moron. I am not saying TikTok is dead. What I'm saying is, is in the TikTok era, the way songs got big was that a user of the platform would make a video and then it would catch on. It would spread other users to do it. But what we're now seeing is, is that musicians themselves do like lip singing videos, POV videos. They clip their music video and then it blows up from the content the musician makes themselves. But what's happening there and why that's happening now is that they're making like 30 to 60 TikToks of the song. And what happens is that I have this all the time and I use some examples in this video is that I'm watching a video. And first time I'm like, eh, whatever, I hear like 30 seconds of it, but I got through enough that the algorithm serves me it again. And then I hear it and I go, that was really fucking good. And so <laughs> I watched it two or three times. And like, even right now, like there's this playlist next to me uh, on my Spotify and like five of the songs are TikTok hooks I heard. And now I rinse those songs that are on my playlist that I listen to every day. Because, like, it got me after the second or the fourth time, and I'm like, yo, I love this now, and this is my favorite song. Like, one of the kids, the other day, actually, I saw he, I went to his Spotify, he had one of those PayPal links up there. I was like, you know, he deserves $200. I make, I'm sure, way more money than this 18-year-old, but he makes me really happy. Here's $200. I should support him. That's amazing, man. Good for you for for supporting like that, because... You know, a lot of people wouldn't. So, you know, that's, yeah. well, that's amazing. I mean, that, this is what we should be doing when musicians are paid this bad. And uh, let's be honest, the liberal media pays me really well these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think that that's a really interesting topic that you bring up about just like the marketing side of of being in a band. And, and you mentioned making like 30 to 60 videos. And uh, it, it's something that I find a lot of bands, there's a lot of artists that have really great songs. And they, they know that they have a good song, but they have no clue where to start marketing. And, you know, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with the bands that just, you know, it, you can tell the album's going to fail because there's no game plan for it. Yeah. Um, so as far as, I mean, I, I realize this is a bit of a loaded question, but um, as far as where an artist should look to start promoting their music, what would you recommend for someone who has no clue? Yeah. Uh, so on my YouTube channel, I have a playlist on the front page that's called how to get people to notice your music. And while that is, a, I'd say about four hours of videos long, which is the, you know, the TLDR of the least you should know. If I was really summing this up, the big thing is really this one. We're in an era where algorithmic discovery is one of the main ways that everything gets discovered. So you have to actually feed the algorithms. So what does feed the algorithm mean? It actually means feeding people's attention spans because the algorithm is based on what people's attention spans want the most. So what that is, is releasing a new song every six to eight weeks. So that sometimes means you got to save up 
six, 10 songs, and then do that consistently every six to eight weeks. But this is the most consistent way people blow up these days is doing that. But then the key is, is what we fill in those six to eight weeks. And that's telling a lot of stories around your song on social media, which includes those TikToks we were just talking about, captions and Instagrams of stories, feeding people that, but then also a lyric video and a music video and sometimes an alternate version, which is a remix, a feature, added an acoustic version, a version with an orchestra, some other way of doing the song. All of that stuff uh, really, really, really helps make it so that uh, you keep asking for people attention. So the big thing is, is that you're in competition with, for, with so many other artists to get attention. You have to keep reminding people by asking them for attention that, and that if people are liking it, then they start sharing it. And the biggest thing people underestimate is the biggest part of this because most people's music is terrible. People don't share it. But if people really like what you do and they do it, the sharing is the biggest thing. You know, a good example. So I do consulting calls with uh, a lot of artists. And it's very funny. One of my consulting clients, he was about to get started doing everything and he hadn't even really gotten going yet. But his song was so good that without ever doing anything, Spotify put it into the algorithm and they got 2 million streams. But he has this incredible course and he's gone on to get very big things. But the first thing he put out was that good, that hmm. he didn't do anything. I literally was telling him, he's like, the first call is, I have no idea what the fuck to do, but I think I made a great song. And I hear the song, it has this incredible chorus, like just instant one-liner, one of those how the hell did no one write this before lines, and it blows up. And that is the thing, those people shared it, so they kept putting it in the algorithm, and there you go. And, like, that's really the thing. But more powerful than any good strategy is always the great song. But when you have just a damn good song, which is a lot of all of our favorite songs, they're not – the greatest song ever, they're not the most infectious song ever. We all love a lot of those songs. You need good strategy, and that is a lot of the strategy right now. Like, if I was telling somebody, if you think you have a great song, all you're going to do is keep releasing songs because you build off each one, make 30 to 60 TikToks, study the TikTok algorithm. And honestly, it's the thing I say to every musician. The bad news I have for you, you're never going to be paid worse than probably right now in the music business, or really five years ago to right now. About to get better, in my opinion. But uh, you've never had to do less to blow up your song. Never True. have had it. I know everybody likes to feel sorry for themselves in this era. Feel sorry for the pay. Do not feel sorry for yourself that you never have had to do less. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two big misconceptions that a lot of people still, and it's, a lot of people have, and I think it's based on a lot of um, old school music industry things, which is that, like, this idea that, a good song is all you need. Like, I know you just kind of said that that is true, but it's, it's, it isn't. That is the rarest thing. It's, it's, it's that that's the one in a million, maybe even less than one in a million is that you just need that. And yes, the algorithm will do the rest, but like truly no one sees this more than me. I work with literally, I do calls with about 300 artists a year. That is not the case. And a lot of these artists are already doing well or done well. They still need to promote the living hell out of it to grow. Yeah. And I, I think it's the reason why, you know, someone can look at another artist that's on the radio right now and be like, oh, I hate their music. Like, they don't deserve that fame or whatever. And it's like, no, it's because these people actually know how to market themselves and, like, they work their ass off to, like, make their music known, you know. And that there's a reason why other people are more successful often. And it just has to do with, like, that that work ethic, you know. Yep. Um, so, so, yeah, I definitely think, like, you know, there's that belief of, like, 
a song is all you need. And then there's also that belief of like, a label is what you really need because, you know, with a label, you're going to get so much promotion and they're going to blow you up. But it's like more and more we're like we have the ability to be making content that spreads our music to millions of people with our phones. You know, it's it's so accessible now. And, you know, it, it's it's amazing. Like, I think, you know, you'd mentioned like 30 to 60 TikTok videos. I think a lot of people hear that and they're intimidated by that. Like, how do I make like what kind of videos do I make on TikTok and that kind of thing? Right. Um so I don't know. I don't know if you have any content about that, but like, oh, well, well, lucky for them, what's on the screen right now is uh, the, my edit of that video of exactly which ones to make, which oh, will be po- be posted uh, on uh, first week of May. Perfect, love it. Yeah, but 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 I think you're right. It's like the more you can put the, that content out there, the easier it is to spread, and uh, you do have to kind of learn i mean you have to be willing to learn the algorithm a little bit and and to see what's working and what's not um i can think of a, a great example I, I have friends in a band called crash adams and they're they're blowing up on tiktok i don't know maybe you've even seen their stuff um but they uh when they first started they were just like their their shtick was that they would they had we had so i shared a studio with these guys and in our studio we had this big red couch and their first photo shoot they did they did on this couch and uh they're their marketing idea was like, let's just go around Toronto with this giant couch and take photos in the middle of intersections and stuff like that. And they started I have to- seen that. I, I literally have seen that. You're right. Yeah. So, so they started doing that and like people started to notice and like, I think they got up to like, you know, a hundred thousand views or whatever on, on these things. And, and then eventually they like, I could tell they started to watch the algorithm a little bit more and like learn, okay, like these kind of things are catchy. And now they're getting like millions of streams and millions of views and, and they just got to deal with Warner. Like it, it's like, I hope I didn't blow any information about that. I think they they publicly announced that, but but like this band has just been doing it all themselves with like little TikTok videos of like things that to some people might seem dumb, but it's 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 that that earworm thing of just getting the music out there and and it's spreading because it's catchy, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, it's very funny because a lot of people who get on consulting or people in my comments, my YouTube's are like, well, in my genre, you need a label. And I'm like, what's your genre? And so then the funniest thing is what we do is we have this amazing tool called chart metric. Anybody can have it for $7 a month and anybody can see this. You can go to a playlist and you can actually see live right now what labels every artist is on that's on the playlist. Because what they do is they harvest the data. So they have to rip some idiot will be like, well, but the label's paying for it. And they do it. When the label pays for it, you have to remember you get paid by the label chief. So the label, the way they do that is they upload your music through their upload system. What they actually measure on Chartmetric is which upload system put up the song. And they show you the labels and all that. And what you see over and over again is all those people who think, I can't blow up my song, my song's never going to be huge, is that these genre playlists that have the biggest songs on Spotify right now have tons of DIY and indie artists that are either on the tiniest of labels or on their own label or putting their music up through DistroKid and TuneCore just like everyone else. So, and I literally, like there are a genre or two where yes, you rarely see a DIY artist do it because it's just still such a label system, but that's mostly music being made for old people if I'm being honest. (laughs) It's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're... You have to be aware of your audience and know where, I mean, it's like any business, right? You have to serve your audience where they are. And if you're serving an older audience that doesn't like using the internet, 
well, you're not going to try to reach them over the internet, you know, like yeah. kind of makes sense. But for the majority of people who are making music in their twenties or thirties or whatever, and they're trying to capture people's attention that are in that same demographic, you have to be paying attention to where those audiences are and how they consume content. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, what, so that said, I mean, going back to this idea of creativity and making music that's authentic to themselves, there's a lot of people who would just say like, my creativity is all about the songwriting. And like, I don't want to get bogged down by all the TikTok and learning all these algorithms and stuff like that. So what advice would you have to people in that position as far as helping their careers? (laughs) You can do whatever you want. No one's forcing you to do anything, but there's this funny thing about the neighborhood I live in in Brooklyn. I joke that my particular corridor of it is if um, you walk from house to house, you either meet a retired musician who was in a very big band you've heard of or a podcaster. Um, I like to joke I'm a little bit of both. <laughs> and um, so uh, the point being, when you're, I'm at the bar talking to these washed-up musicians. What they're usually regretting is that they didn't do more to promote their music. It's literally the oldest cry me in, into your beer shit I hear. Uh, and I, I will just say this, like you can do that at your own peril, but like the worst thing is regretting not working hard on your dreams. And like, you don't got to twerk on TikTok. People do plenty of things that aren't embarrassing on there these days and their songs blow up just fine. In fact, usually when I see most of you on stage, it's no less embarrassing than the bullshit you do there. So... <laughs> Um, and you can actually blow up now just fine with doing what you do on stage. There's so many different flavors of what's blowing up on there. So I think it's a little silly, but at the same time, I, I know for me, you know, a good example is like, I don't work as hard on promoting my YouTube as I probably should because, well, I have other careers. I have other things to do. And to be honest with you, uh, some of the comments exhaust me at times. I'm mean, only human. I mean, I don't really take the insults to heart, but in all honesty, like what most exhausts me is just hearing really, really ignorant shit all day. Um, you know, hearing that I'm wrong about something, I'm like, well, I have scientific evidence. And I've read a lot of charts and you're being a loudmouth who's just assuming or you don't like the way reality is. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. It's like there's there are a lot of different ways to be – there's a lot of different ways to be authentic to yourself and to mm-hmm. still promote your music. And at the end of the day, no one should care about your music more than you to some degree. You know, It's like you have to believe in it oh, yeah. enough that you're the one that's like leading the herd. And just because you have a label or a manager or whatever doesn't mean that you relinquish all power to those people. It's a partnership. If anything, like you're just working together. Uh, Rick Rubin – who, you know, while he's put out a book that a lot of people have, um, well, let's say just violently disagreed with and called bullshit on a lot of his book, one of the smartest things he's ever said that I've observed as somebody who's worked at major labels, produced and been in the studio with some of the biggest artists in the world, is that um, the level of attention paid and the level of enthusiasm, somebody sets that barometer. Somebody is always the most enthusiastic and paying the most attention. But usually what that does is it sets a bar and people know they can't go too far below it. If somebody's paying violently close attention, 
you can't have the drummer in the back. No matter how psyched he is to have that stripper he picked up there and flirt with her, he knows he can't be telling a joke loudly if one person's really paying hard attention, or else he's going to get reprimanded and then it's going to stop. It's the same thing with enthusiasm. People, musicians have to lead the way, and with most managers, no, number one thing, when I, I consult with musicians who have millions of monthly listeners on Spotify, the big thing that they always see is like, they're like, I'm, my manager's not giving me my attention. I'm like, do you annoy them enough? And the answer is usually no. They start annoying them more, and they're like, oh, I repaired my relationship with my manager. <laughs> I, you have to learn that you have to be the squeakiest wheel to most people. A manager's general job, as I've learned, I manage tons of popular bands as well, is being the person who annoys the whole team the most. It's true. It reminds me a lot of uh, one of my earlier bands. We we had a manager, and, and our first meeting with him, he, he basically said, like, I'm only going to work with you guys if you're working harder than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I and at the time, I remember thinking, like, well, then why are we, you know, what, what's the deal with it? And, but then it all made sense to me afterwards. It's like, yeah, he's going to do what we need him to do. But at the end of the day, if we're not leading the charge there and we're not, like, you know, providing the— uh, the resources to do so, it's, he's not going to do much, you know, and we just have to be working our asses off to help keep him busy, you know, and and I think that that's how it should be. You have to you have to really push yourself a lot. A, a thing I tell musicians to always make them realize, because so many musicians think the manager relationship is usually like they see you once, they're like, okay, here's a contract. I liked what I saw. What I, I actually have never said yes to a band that asked me to manage them. I think five to seven times was usually when I finally did it. But it's because I'd be like, here's some free advice. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you're not doing enough of. And then I'd see if they would do it. And then I would see if they did it again. I would see if they did it again. And if they passed those tests, well, then I knew this is probably going to be a good working relationship. They were actually able to listen. They were hustling enough that I knew they'd probably be worth my time to put in because I'm probably going to put in, you know, even when you're managing a successful band, sometimes the hours don't really account to the compensation. They never do. (laughs) I honestly don't think they ever do unless it's like a massive band. (laughs) Yeah, I have a few friends with like exceptions. I mean, I was very lucky with Man Overboard that we had a huge, huge merch line. So things worked well. And what was also nice is their success since I was producing them, their success when other artists came to me to produce them that liked them. So that helped. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, you are definitely seeing more and more these days. Like I've always said, the music industry, at least these days, isn't the music industry anymore. It's the entertainment industry. And so you really do need to work at creating a brand for your band as opposed to just focusing on the song only. And, you know, if you can create that merchandising line or have that familiarity and, you know, be that name brand or whatever, then then you'll I think you'll have a good career because of that. Like, you know, that's that's what keeps people spreading the word and sharing things. But, you know, the songs alone, you know those aren't always getting you the, the places you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hundred percent correct. Yeah. Um, you'd briefly mentioned Spotify before, and I feel like it's, it's worth talking about that. Cause obviously we've talked about TikTok and these video platforms. Um, but I think Spotify is one of those things that like even the laziest, laziest of musicians still understand that Spotify is important. And you know, it's, it's like they're, they have a great song, so they know they got to be on Spotify. Um, and Spotify definitely plays a big role in getting discovered these days, um, especially with playlists. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, what are some of the best ways for artists to get noticed on Spotify or to get on some playlists? So first off, 
most artists don't submit their release to uh, early enough. Uh, you need to submit 30 days in advance for playlist consideration. You need to write a strong playlist pitch. If you don't know how to write a strong playlist pitch, I have a video that's fully dedicated that's very easy to find on my channel. Uh, second off, most artists don't take advantage of what literally everyone at a label, particularly to if it's a label that is very experienced in pop or dance or hip-hop, uh, but it works just as well in rock, uh, knows that doing collaborations, features, and remixes, and where you tag another artist as the primary artist because you have their permission and you've worked on a song together, is the greatest, most effective marketing. So a lot of dance labels, they used to put 70% of their budget into uh, making content, whether that's music videos or whatever. Now they take that 70% and they get people to do features on songs. They do remixes because what it does is it makes it so that the uh, algorithm will alert on Discover Weekly, Release Radar, things like that. It sees you two tied to each other and it tells you know, the one artist uh, audience, you will probably like this other artist because they worked together. And then the other thing is, is you then have a song that has real estate with your name on it on their page for the duration of that artist's career. So if that artist blows up and there's lots of people checking them out, they can then, then get offered your song, hear who you are. Maybe they click you. Maybe they get into you. I do it all the time. That's how I find so many of the artists I like is I click on who collaborated on what track with who. And that is one of the biggest things. The other really, really big thing that uh, – artists don't get is that you can keep people engaged with Spotify artist playlists. If you have a little bit of uh, a seed in the community around you making playlists that target that scene, if it has a term, if it has a certain area, you know, making Greenpoint's best uh, musicians and making a playlist to that. If that goes up in SEO, that gets lots of listens. You get discovered through that, through the popularity of usually other people and people discovering it. Uh, but really, the consistency thing is a lot of what works best for Spotify and building off of that. The other thing, obviously, too, is that a lot of people don't do properly is pitching to user playlists. They go on SubmitHub, they pitch to 100 playlists. That does not do you any good. You need to pitch to only the most perfect ones. That's great. Yeah, I love that. That's that's amazing advice because uh, I think a lot of people don't know about the the timeline with that kind of stuff, and yeah. they just figure, oh, I just release my songs and then I start to ship it out to people. And 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 a lot of people would have this impression that like, well, if my song's not out there, then no one knows it. No one knows about it to even give a shit to put it on the playlist. But you know, yeah. it, it 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 doesn't work that way. So um, I think that that's awesome that you brought up that point. And I also really like that you mentioned having. Uh, collaborations and feature, you know, featuring other artists. I think that's a great way to do it. It's it's leveraging someone else's audience, and that's such a big thing. Um, I, there's Huge. a there's a book you've probably read it. Uh, Russell Brunson he wrote a book called Expert Secrets, and in it he yes, talks about like yeah, and he talks about like the the Dream 100, which is basically like write down a list of 100 people that you would love to do collaboration with, and slowly make your way through that list, and eventually you know you're just leveraging 100 people's audiences, and that's going to help you grow drastically. And and I think that. From an artist perspective, that's a great way to do it too. You know, it's <laughs> the, the practices that work in the business world and the market. You know, the, the, those all work in the music industry too. So, yeah. So the, the one difference is that we always have to keep in mind with the uh, music world is uh, the customer is not always right. Um, you have to do. You have to do 
what you you have to make what you want to hear first and it doesn't make them right and you don't need to listen to what they they say always you what you people want to hear is the music you want uh, uh you want to hear first and if that doesn't align with them that's the only thing you can do so you got to just go to bed knowing you tried your hardest Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great spot to wrap up. So uh, thank, first off, thank you for, for taking the time to do this and, and for sharing all that advice. It's definitely very useful stuff that I'm sure people can take and run with, and they should definitely be checking out all of your platforms as well. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, jessecannon.com has a list of everything I do. Um, I'm at jessecannon, J-E-S-S-E-C-A-N-N-O-N, on every social media and uh, yeah, on YouTube, if you search my name, you find my channel. Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. You asked phenomenal questions, so this was uh, very enjoyable for me. Thank you. So that was my interview with Jesse Cannon, and I really enjoyed having that conversation. The thing I love about Jesse is that he's just such a straight shooter, and he's not afraid to tell you what he thinks. But it's not an opinion. He actually really backs this stuff up with a lot of research, and he does truly understand the business side of it. He understands the metrics that are important. He pays attention to the algorithm and understands how it works. And he's got so much experience in this that there is so much to learn. It's not just an opinion. It's it's actually what's working. And because he works with so many artists, he's seeing it every single day. So if you're an artist who has music, you do need to always be considering your marketing plan. If you want your music to be heard, you have to market yourself. You know, as we talked about, it's not enough to have a great song. You need to market it. So that said, I highly recommend you go back into this interview and really pay attention to a lot of the advice that he gave here as far as what kind of content to be making, uh, what types of videos to make, what platforms to be on, what timelines to work with, all that kind of stuff. It's all super important. So if you want your music to get noticed, you need to be doing these things and not treating your music as just a hobby. You know, treat this seriously. And if you do that, you will see success with it. Now, speaking of taking your music seriously, one trap that I find a lot of musicians fall into as it relates to their home studios is that many people believe they're only capable of creating demo quality from their homes. And I think a big reason for that is because they haven't quite mastered the tools or the process or the workflow that goes into creating pro-sounding recordings and mixes. And if you don't understand that stuff, of course, all you're going to create is demo quality. But if you're serious about making music that sounds really good, that sounds really clean and polished, and that ultimately sounds the way you've always wanted to hear your music, if that sounds like you, then I want to let you know that I just recently launched a brand new coaching program. It's called Amplitude. And in that program, you'll gain a repeatable system for recording, editing, and mixing your music to get it sounding pro. And not only do you get a ton of training inside of there, but you also get actual feedback on your tracks. I'm talking one-on-one -on -one daily coaching where you can send me tracks and I will review your tracks and tell you what you need. You know, what changes you need to be paying attention to when it comes to EQ, compression, or volume, or whatever your songs need. You will get personalized feedback to help improve your mixes. Plus, in addition to all of that, there are a ton of extra bonuses, including mastering and some other great stuff. So if you're interested in learning more and you would like some one-on-one -on -one support with your music, 
definitely make sure to check out masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And on that page, I've got all of the details of the program. Now, I must say that I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. So if you're interested in joining, make sure to visit that website and make sure to fill out the application. I'd love to hop on a call with you to learn a little bit more about you and your music and what you're struggling with and the projects that you're working on to make sure that you're a good fit. And if it does seem like a good fit, then I would definitely love to invite you into the program and to get to work with you one-on-one to help you create music that sounds pro and ultimately excited to share your music with the world. So once again, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude to get all the details. So that is it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.